0: Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I'm the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. My conversation today is with Leah wright Rigur, Assistant Professor of Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. We will be discussing her book, The Loneliness of the Black Republican, Pragmatic Politics and the Pursuit of Power, published by Princeton University Press. How did the grand old party of Lincoln lose its position as the home of the African American vote? covering more than four decades beginning in Roosevelt's New Deal, to Ronald Reagan's presidential election, Rigueur examines the ideas and actions of black Republican activists, officials, and politicians to build and remain within the party's shrinking tent. Marginalized within their own communities and party, black Republicans fought political battles on two fronts. They continually sought to include black needs and interests in the changing formulation of conservatism. Their stories reveal an alternative approach to economic and civil rights within a party increasingly hostile to racially progressive ideas as it wooed the white vote. Regueur introduces Republican views of many, including Senator Edward Brooks, Robert J. Brown, Jackie Robinson, and black organizations such as the National Black Republican Council and the National Negro Republican Assembly. Black Republicans dealt with numerous issues, including ensuring black political participation, individual rights, economic opportunity, and racial equality. Rigour has given us a detailed examination of the failure of the Republican Party to live up to the legacy of Lincoln and to respond to its black members who remain committed to the conservative ideals of free enterprise, individual initiative, and limited government. Here's my conversation with Leo Wright Rigore. Now let me introduce you to the author, Leah Wright-Riguer. Leah, welcome to the show. Thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience.
1: Thanks for having me, Lillian. I'm really excited about this.
0: Your book may come as a surprise to many, and it was a surprise to me, in that you are describing what many of us think is an extinct political creature. But before we get into the book, tell us about yourself, your background, and how you came to write on the topic of black Republicans.
1: Well, first, thank you for having me on the show. I, I'm really excited to be part of this discussion, and I'm hoping that anybody listening, um, if they're interested, that we can continue the conversation later on and continue the dialogue. Um, so how did I come to this story? Well, it, it's pretty interesting. You know, I've always been interested in modern political history, and I've always been interested in stories that go against the grain, so uh, are a little out of the norm, um, a little off the beaten track. And so I started off thinking that I wanted to do a project on Jesse Jackson and Operation Breadbasket, PUSH, and the Rainbow Coalition, and how they moved, in, how Jesse Jackson moved into a modern political um, arena in the 1980s with the Democratic Party. And then that book came out, <laughs> so it kind of beat me to the punch. Um, but while while I was studying, while I was doing that, the initial background research, I came across a document, and you know, I had a professor in graduate school who said that history comes from good footnotes, good documents, and politics. And that is incredibly true, because I found this document about Jesse Jackson promising the Republican National Committee in 1978 an influx of black voters. Now, to me, that, that just seems odd, right? Because black everyone knows that black voters don't support the Republican Party. It's one of the truisms of American politics, uh, contemporary American politics. To, so to see somebody... You know, who's part of the SELC, part of uh, uh, the Democratic Party coalitions during the 1980s, promising the Republican Party an influx of black voters just seemed, you know, downright bizarre to me. And ultimately what it led to was just a massive treasure trove of documents about African-Americans who identified as Republicans or chose to affiliate with the Republican Party for uh, political purposes. And so it was really exciting, I think, to dive into that history and that story.
0: Okay. I think what we need to do now is sort of go back uh, to the history of the black voter in the Republican Party, back to Lincoln, and sort of give us a little background of the early relationship between black African Americans and the Republican Party.
1: So I think, you know, um, coming out of coming out of slavery and coming uh, post, I think, post uh, enfranchisement, African-Americans traditionally aligned themselves with the Republican Party. And I wouldn't necessarily say that it was uh, a a stable relationship or a great relationship. You know, um, we may have heard those stories about Herbert Hoover and the Lily White movement, where he tried to kind of uh toss out black voters and bring in more white voters. So there's there's definitely a history there. But traditionally, before the New Deal, African Americans voted for the Republican Party. Now what happens? FDR comes along and during the first uh the first wave of the New Deal, the first election, nineteen thirty two, black voters don't support him or the Democratic Party, because they associate Democrats with kind of Southern races, segregationists, um, etc. But by 1936 African Americans are supporting Roosevelt in full force. There is a tremendous shift, a real shift, um, in voting patterns after that moment, um, and and part of this can be due to I think you know uh, Roosevelt's introduction of economic policies that helped African Americans. Right? They were colorblind policies, but they also affected African Americans because they were, for once, they were not excluded from policies. Uh, there's also the role of Eleanor Roosevelt who was tremendous, where her husband was hesitant, I think, on racial, racial issues. Eleanor Roosevelt went above and beyond as first lady and as kind of a political activist to include African-Americans at the table. Um, but what's interesting about that is that even as African-Americans are supporting FDR and presidential elections, at local uh, on the local level, they're not necessarily supporting the Democratic Party. Right? We still have problems in the South. We're starting to see new relationships in the North, things like that. And so we don't really get a switch, a full-blown voter affiliation switch, until 1948 with Truman. Why does that happen? Race and civil rights. In particular, Truman comes out with kind of a bill of rights you know, to secure these rights. What does the Democratic Party need to do, and what does America need to do to support equality? Um, and on top of that... Uh, we have the Dixiecrat Party removes itself. So, Southern segregationists from the Deep South states remove themselves from the Democratic Party, allowing a window of opportunity for black voters. Um, more important, I think, however, is the fact that the Republican Party during this point in time, whereas before they may have taken a robust stance on civil rights, is beginning to downplay this idea of civil rights. And so, by the 1950s, you really have a real tension. With the Republican Party that's endorsing gradualism, a Democratic Party that's saying, you know what, we endorse civil rights, but we still have Southern segregationists and black voters are kind of stuck in the middle.
0: Now, I guess this wave, your uh, increasing wave of uh, movement of, of blacks to the Democratic Party, which was gradual, it wasn't over- overnight, as you're ex- describing, there were. Black people, African Americans, who firmly were committed to the Republican Party and remained committed to the Republican Party, who were these African Americans? Were they just rich African Americans? Um, were who were they, and what was what what was their relationship to the rest of the African American community?
1: So I think what's pretty interesting about the whole thing is that. Um there's no, there's no real huge rhyme or reason to what goes on in the 1950s to those African-Americans who before 1960 stay with the Republican Party. Um, some of it can be attributed to money, meaning that if African-Americans have enough money to kind of forego the economic concerns of which the Democratic Party does really a better job in the 1950s of pushing... Um, then they can concentrate on civil rights, and we see a rise in support for the Republican Party. So the people who tend to support the Republican Party in the 1940s and 1950s that are black tend to be upper middle class and wealthy African Americans who are concerned about civil rights and still have questions about Southern Democrats place in the Democratic Party. Uh, Working class and... um, and poor African Americans by the 1950s are really in, are, are really committed, I think, to the Democratic Party. And in fact, if you look at polls, I think, from the 1960s, early 1960s, you see very early on black voters are saying, who stands for the common man? Who stands, who's the party for the working man? And almost kind of universally across the country, Democrats, uh, black uh, black voters are saying the Democratic Party they're saying the republican party might be better on racial issues but when they don't really see a difference they're voting for the democratic party so i think there's a real economic split that's happening before 19, the 1960s where working class and poor african americans are saying you know what we can bypass some of these racial issues to say we care about the uh, we care about the democratic party whereas upper middle class and wealthy african americans are saying Well, we don't have economic issues on the, you know, on our plate, so we do. So we do care about the racial issues, and right now, we think the Republican Party is best.
0: Okay. Okay. So, what is? Let's talk about conservatism uh, in the in the Republican Party. What do we mean by conservatism, and why is it categorically, I think, in your book, seems to be set up against anti civil rights. what about colorblind conservatism?
1: <laughs> so that's, a, that's a, I think, a fantastic question, and it's a difficult question. Um, one of the things that I say in the book is that the definition of conservatism is flexible and has changed dramatically over the course of the period that I look in the book. So between 1936 and 1981, um, conservatism comes to mean different things, and in fact, People that we define as conservative during the 1950s are really arguing over, this is what conservatism means. This is what conservatism means. I think by the early 1960s, we have a definition of conservatism that is really about pushing back from the federal government, strong capitalist background. Um, I think there's still an anti-immigration tint in there. There's some religious uh, kind of element in there as well. Um, but really, capitalism and free market ideology is the guiding principle that's really pushing this. And I think an antagonism against kind of liberal, uh, liberal democratic social welfare or the idea of a huge social safety net. Um, so, so we do see a lot of that during the 1950s and 1960s. Now, this idea of colorblindness comes in, I think, as a result of Republicans really not knowing what to do on matters of race. Just saying, if we talk about race, we tend to talk about it in the wrong way. And we tend to talk about it in ways that are antagonistic. So why don't we take the approach that we're not going to talk about race. We're going to say we don't see color at all. It's best to avoid color. And ultimately, though, what that ends up doing is not necessarily being a true and accurate representation of what's going on (laughs) in the 1960s. Um, so colorblindness emerges as a strategy um, um, uh, in the post-1964 kind of 1964 era as avoiding controversial topics on race, but then um, ultimately evolves as more and more, I think, conservatives take hold of it into something where it says, well, we're going to find ways to talk about race without actually addressing race.
0: <laughs> okay, let me ask you a question about these two – I think two strands here of, uh, I guess – African American thought. One has to do with self help and work ethic, personal responsibility, free enterprise, and industry, which I kind of associated in my own mind with Booker T. Washington. And then you've got this other, I would say the W.E.B. Du Bois strand of African American African-American thought that really does take race into account and really does see economic issues being more than just about individuals. Would that would those two strands a way to categorize uh, what's happening here with African Americans in terms of politically between uh, those who are attracted to the Democratic Party, those who are attracted to the Republican Party?
1: Well, yes and no, because there's there's I think there's interesting things that go on, especially during this period where you really see a mix of W.E.B. Du Bois' school of uh, early school of thought, Talented Ten, right, uplifting the race, um, elitism coupled with Booker T. Washington's self-help, personal accountability, responsibility. And it makes for really interesting politics and one that is crosses party lines. So in the book, I talk um, especially about how there's this strain of um, self-help and talented 10th belief that applies to uh, black Democrats and black Republicans. And in fact, it's one of the reasons why I figure like Edward, uh, Edward Brooke Become so popular amongst African-American middle class uh, voters.
0: Okay, so let's talk a little bit about uh, the, pro- the, the difference between, or the clash that seems to be in your book between civil rights and individual rights that seems to keep coming up, so that you have uh, black Republicans having to deal with civil rights. I think that they're sympathetic to that, but they're trying to, like, recast it or create a rhetoric that is different from the mainstream civil rights movement so that they can sell it within the re- Republican Party. How do they do that?
1: So that's a great, um, that's a, a, a great uh, point. So here's the thing about, I think, individual rights and civil rights. During the 1960s, when Barry Goldwater kind of starts rising to prominence and begins to talk about individual rights, individualism, individual, individual, black Republicans say this is a fantastic idea in theory, (laughs) perhaps even in principle. But in reality, we're not seen as individuals. So therefore, how can we begin to talk about individual rights and what are the rights of the individual when we don't even have equal rights, when we don't have civil rights? So how about we get to civil rights first, equal rights, and then we can begin to be seen as individuals embrace this concept of individual rights. And really, it's at the crux of this debate for, you know, almost 40 years, over 40 years, where black Republicans are saying we have to be on the right side of history. Let's address civil rights so that it's a non-issue, right? Because if both parties are saying we care about civil rights, we believe in equality, civil rights is off the table – then we can focus on those issues that really divide us as a nation, right? Are you a fiscal conservative? Or are you fiscally liberal? Do you believe in, you know, actually women's rights or do you not believe in women's rights? Things kind of these other issues and take race out of the picture. The problem with that, of course, is that um, it's really hard to see notions of equality if you are a conservative and you're white, right? Because you say, well, well, I'm white. You're black. What's the big deal? Let's all care about individual rights. Civil rights, you know, your civil rights are impinging on my rights. So therefore, et cetera, et cetera. So it becomes this really sticky proposition. So I think black Republicans take this in 1964 as a watershed moment where they're forced to act on their beliefs. Um, and so they do try and carve out a place for themselves in which they embrace an, um, an agenda that is centered around race and civil rights. But then they distinctly separate themselves from the civil rights movement at different points in time, right, where they say, I'm not meant to be Martin Luther King Jr. I'm definitely not meant to be part of the black power movement if black power means, you know, separatism and antagonism or things like that, or even revolution. I believe in a two-party system. Um, So they're really pushing back against this. Although there are different points in time, especially in the early 1960s, where black Republicans who say or who initially say, I'm not part of this movement, have no choice but to be part of this movement. Right. So we see a lot of this, say, with the Selma marches or the Voting Rights Act, where at this point in time, if you're black and you're not a part of the movement, it's kind of, you know, people are looking at you and scratching your head. Um, And as one person told me, I had no choice but to be part of the civil rights movement, even if I saw myself as distinct from it. And then I think later on, uh, once we're past the era of protests and sit-ins and that kind of kind of you know active uh, active progressive politics. We see black Republicans try to carve out an economic civil rights agenda, one that is firmly rooted um, in administrative policies um, uh, in terms of, and uh, in, in that's somewhere in, in between progressive and conservative, right? Ed Brook calls it progressive conservatism. Um, other people just call it, you know, refer to it as fiscal conservatism, but couched in policies that are um, equally distributed amongst the races. So we do see a lot of push for economic or green power as being kind of this transformative Civil rights initiative.
0: Now, there's another. There's another thing I see here. In uh, it wasn't just ideology was drawing African Americans into the Republican Party, but also it's it, you're also talking about the fact that they they believed in a two party system, and they wanted the Republican Party to be a player in civil rights, in these other things. They didn't want it just to be left out of the Republican platform. Talk about a little bit about that.
1: Um, so, Lillian, can you repeat the question? I didn't hear the last part. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, I'm asking about the African Americans looking at uh, parties and the strategy of being in the Republican Party in order to promote civil rights and racial equality within that party. So it just there wouldn't be... Um, so those issues could stay alive in the Republican Party.
1: So, so there's a kind of a, I think, an understanding amongst um, political scientists, definitely historians, that you know, in a two party system, what ultimately happens to minority voters is that one party, if you if you continue to vote um, in a particular way, one party will take you for granted, and one party will forget about you, right? And this is kind of the the um, the, the fallacy of a two-party system, right? You have one choice, the other, or not vote at all. And so I think black Republicans being the minority in a minority party <laughs> um, end up kind of really taking this to heart um, and believing, okay, one party is ultimately going to take us for granted. Democrats are going to take us for granted because we have voted as a block for them for generations now. Republicans, consequently, are gonna give up on us. They're gonna think that we can't win them over. And when they give up on us, uh, that means our policies and our initiatives won't be implemented or tied into their platform or their agenda. The other side of that is once the other party takes us for granted and they know that they can get our vote, they're not gonna do anything for us either. So the idea then becomes, well, I my politics may align a little bit more squarely with the Democratic Party, But they also align enough with the Republican Party or the liberal or moderate wing of the Republican Party enough that I want to stick it out and stay in it and make change from within. And I think a lot of people kind of look at this and scratch their heads and say, well, how can you affiliate with a party that is increasingly hostile to your agenda of civil rights and change? And the answer that I got, because I did ask that question to a number of people, the answer that I got is, well, you can enact change from outside. The best way to enact change, in, if the thinking goes, is from the inside. So even as we're kind of stymied and pushed back at every step, eventually somebody is going to be in a position of power. And in fact, we do see that play out in a number of different ways. We see it play out in the Ford administration. We see it play out in the Nixon administration. And we also see it play out with uh, the various kind of officials, both at the local um, and state level, figures like Ed Brooke. Who actually become policy makers and so have a way of enacting change. And one way to, uh, uh, one explicit example is to look at something like affirmative action and the introduction of affirmative action, uh, in the late 1960s and 1970s. Another example might be the 1968, uh, fair housing bill, right, which, uh, Ed Brook co-sponsors. So there are ways to see in which these kind of ideas, these progressive ideas, these civil rights um, ideas, um, and these ideas about race and equality actually become implemented through um, a Republican vehicle. It's not an easy way to go, um, not at all, but it's one that I think they truly believed in um, as being the best way in a two-party system.
0: Now the, now, the African-American within the Republican Party are, really have two – the reason your book is called The Loneliness of the <laughs> Black Republican is because they really are in a terrible situation. On the one hand, they've got their black community on one side that they're sort of alienated from because they're, they're kind of distanced from that as Republicans, but they also have a problem within the party. They're also marginalized within the party, and there's racism. So let's talk about what's going on within the party. How are uh, white Republicans dealing or approaching or thinking about the black the black people in their party?
1: So, you know, part of the frustration I think that black Republicans have over this period and, and continue to have in private conversations, I, I understand, is that they have so many ideas about outreach and so many ways of kind of reaching out to to black voters, but they are constantly being kind of put into an equation, a racial equation, where white officials and white leaders say, if we do outreach to black people, if we take up these issues on race, how many white voters are we going to lose? And it's actually as cold and as calculating as it sounds, right? So there are strategists sitting around in these rooms saying... You know, for every black vote that we gain, are we going to lose 10 white voters? Um, and that is always kind of the back and forth. So, so you know, there are the extremes. There, there are people who within the party, white Republicans who are saying, you know, I don't want black people in the party. But increasingly, as we get more and more towards the contemporary era and the, the present day era, it's much more of a numbers game where there there are our white Republicans are afraid, are actively afraid that they are going to lose this numbers game. When it comes to white voters, um, everything is really seen through the lens of, of race, which is why, you know, the irony of colorblindness, when you have people sitting behind closed doors saying, how do we retain white voters? Can we retain white voters if we talk about race? Um, and so I think that is one of the big struggles that I came across uh, throughout my kind of research over and over and over again. Um, one of the other things that I think you begin to see is that as the struggle plays out, um, one of the most effective ways for shutting down Black Republicans is taking away the money. Right. So money really dictates the conversation. Can we do these programs? Can we do these initiatives? You know, can we enact these policies? Well, if we don't have money, there's very there are very few things that we can do. And so a lot of times you see money drying up. Or you see money being revoked, and I think it really doesn't—it uh, does uh, significant damage to any kind of efforts or outreach that Black Republicans want to do. You
0: now, uh, Republicans could have just uh, focused on economic equality. If they wanted to leave the race issue behind, they could just say, "We're just going to talk about economics, leave race at the door." And uh, African American Republicans could have made a case for. Uh, African Americans, guy under the guise of economic, you know, progressive ideas, but what, were economic ideas sort of equated with race?
1: Well, you know, I, I think there there took a lot of there was a lot of convincing, but by the mid nineteen sixties, in particular, after Goldwater, kind of. Uh, really flopped amongst Black voters in 1964. There's a real appreciation for the connection between economics and race. You know, Richard Nixon um, is coming out of um, the 1960 election, and by 1960, by 1962, is saying we really need to stress the connection between race and economics. I think the problem is that the antagonism and the hostility between black voters and Republicans reaches such a fever pitch that by the mid, uh, by the late 1960s and by the early 1970s, uh, black voters are very wary of Republicans coming and talking to them about economics without talking about race. And so, you know, it's, it's one of these things where we know that race and class are, are intimately intertwined. They go together. Um, But when when black voters start hearing Republicans coming in and saying, I'm going to talk to you about economics, I'm going to talk to you about this and this, you see a lot of voters saying, well, why aren't you talking to us about race? Why are you tiptoeing around the racial issue? And there are some people, um, in particular black Republicans, who are very good at this, right, who are very good at addressing the connection between race and economics. Ed Brooke is one of those people. Um, Arthur Fletcher is another person who's very good at this. Um, but for the most part, white Republicans really just struggle with trying to, to, you know, backtrack on the racial issue. And I think a lot of it comes from um, discomfort, not knowing how to talk about race without being antagonistic or without being offensive. So, so there is, I mean, there's, there's definitely an opportunity there. But how that opportunity plays out is, is quite different, <laughs>
0: Okay, let's talk about Richard Nixon, because you've got two chapters on Nixon, and and you talk a lot about the Southern strategy, and it seems like Nixon was a a turning point and a real critical point where African Americans really had to make some tough choices about what what their relationship was going to be uh, within the Republican Party. So talk about that a little bit.
1: Well, so here's the irony with Richard Nixon, which is that for the first time, Black Republicans actually have a Republican administrator. They have Black appointees, more Black appointees than have ever been appointed to the to the um, uh, pres- to a presidential administration before, um, and they have some actual policy making power. And so, when Richard Nixon gets elected, there's a lot of kind of there's a lot of backlash from the from Black communities and minority communities. But there's also a lot of op- optimism. And so if you look at favorability polls amongst black people during, in 1969, black people are, are, are wary of Richard Nixon, but also a little excited, right? So, so you see a lot of we're going to give him a shot, we're going to give him a chance, in particular because we see the people that he's associating with, right? That he's appointing very good people and, and positions. And so we do see some good things start to come out. So we see a lot of economic opportunity programs begin to kind of take shape. Um, in particular, you know, I talk about the emergence of black capitalism, um, affirmative action, the uh, HBCU or the Historically Black Colleges and Universities kind of tunnel program uh, with the federal government. So we see a lot of things come out. Um, and yes, they tend to be geared towards, towards middle class, but there's still, you know, policy that is affecting African-American lives. That being said, Richard Nixon and anybody kind of who's a, who's a student of Richard Nixon, a history student of Richard Nixon, knows that you know he's just he's he's vindictive, uh, <laughs> he's he's a little too smart for his own good, um, and he holds grudges. Um, he's also incredibly racist, and so we see a lot of that begin to play out during his administration. And at one point, he tells his staff, I want you to downplay the civil rights angle. You know, this, is, this has come out increasingly as we see more and more about civil, uh, Nixon's civil rights. Uh, I want you to downplay civil rights. And then we go to, I want you to punish <laughs> uh, African Americans. I want you to punish women voters. I want you to punish, you know, uh, Latino voters because they're not paying me the dividends that I want from them. And so I think, especially on matters of segregation um, and equality, Richard Nixon gains a reputation as being a, a virulent racist um, who is adamantly opposed to civil rights. And, you know, and I talk um, extensively about um, what are those things that he does that, can, that are racist and can be interpreted as racist. And so I think it puts his, admin, it puts his appointees in a terrible situation. Do we denounce the president, the person that we work for, and possibly lose our power and our prestige and our our policy-making abilities, or do we keep our mouths shut and just work from the inside? And so we see a lot of this play out, you know, uh, um, uh, in people quitting, people, you know, resigning, saying, I can't continue to do this job, sitting on, you know, talk show couches and refusing to talk about Richard Nixon, but being highly embarrassed by the relationship to the president. And I think it just throws black Republicans into a a tumultuous period where they don't really don't know what they represent, who they represent or why they're still in, quote unquote, the party of Lincoln.
0: Now, what about this Nixon black cabinet?
1: Right, So this is a loosely assembled group of of African-American appointees who work for Richard Nixon. And I think when they first come out, when they first appear in 1969, it's kind of seen as, you know, uh, Ebony Magazine calls them a black brain trust. They're so excited at the idea or the opportunity of, you know, um, African-Americans working for uh, Richard Nixon. In the same way, I think, that you see uh, Lyndon Johnson's Black Mafia or something like that. There's this real belief that these are people who can be policy-making, um, um, you know, power delegates during the 1960s and can actually enact change from within. And I think over the course of the 1960s and over the course of the Nixon administration, we do see some change and we do see, especially early on, um, policies put into place that actually can affect African-American life. I mean, one of the, the real tragedies of the Nixon administration when it comes to civil rights is that we never really see um, how something like affirmative action can play out, right, or the Philadelphia plan. Because two years into the Philadelphia plan, after it's starting to make gains um, in terms of, you know, workers' unions, um, Nixon effectively shuts it down, right, and starts denying it and saying, you know, we're going to move to kind of a states' rights program um, uh, and and kind of blocking opportunity in that, that regard. So we really don't know what the programs and policies of, of the Black Cabinet would have really fully looked like because they never reached their full potential.
0: And they were very frustrated.
1: Incredibly frustrated.
0: Because um, they weren't listened to. They're coming up with all these ideas, and Nixon doesn't really, does whatever he wants.
1: Right, right. And I think they have, you know, there's, um, the, the Nixon archives are are remarkable because there's so much data on what minorities are doing during, um, during that period. And so there are all these interesting ideas, alternatives, you know, kind of wacky plans that we really don't know about because nobody has, you know, no, um, those plans aren't acted on. We don't really see them. They never get past the theory phase because they're shot down almost immediately. Um, some of the plans, you know, um, there's interesting work that can be done here, for example, on HBCUs. And so how much money is put into um, historically black colleges and universities or black education? It really changes the relationship between HBCUs and the federal government because they begin to receive so much money during the 19, uh, 1970s. So what does that mean, you know, for, uh, for these black colleges and universities? How does that change them? Especially when the conversation originally originated um, as, do we still need HBCUs, Right. But then there's a compelling argument for saying, well, we still do. And in fact, the best talent, uh, the best black talent in our country is coming through HBCUs. So, again, there are all these really interesting ideas that are going on and that are being populated, but that never really come to full fruition because the president effectively shuts it down.
0: let's, Let's move forward to the Reagan era, because it's a long period of time, very influential for the late 20th century, what was Reagan's uh, attitude, approach uh, to African Americans within the Republican Party and generally in the population?
1: So Reagan is a fascinating figure and I really look at his relationship to African Americans from roughly about 1964 through 1981, right? So this is kind of the beginning of uh, the Reagan Revolution era. And I think Part of what goes on is that Ronald Reagan, um, in the 1960s, like like most white Republicans, is trying to figure out minority voters, and so he initially has very poor interactions with black voters. First, when he's running for governor of California, and then later when he takes, you know, he does his first presidential bid, um, where he kind of is, is talking at black voters and not really interacting with them. You know, there's a very famous story in 1966 when he's speaking to a group of black Republicans. And he's accused of being a racist by one of his uh, one of his competitors. And he leaves the room frustrated, angry, on the verge of tears, drives back home. And one of the black Republicans who's organizing the the conference has to drive out, get him and come back. And it kind of describes the the very hostile relationship that black uh, black people have with Ronald Reagan. By the the time that he's um, starting to run for president, He's pulling in more and more um, black, high-profile supporters. So in 1976, where there's this real big bust-up between Gerald Ford and and Ronald Reagan at the uh, 1976 convention, Republican National Convention, Ronald Reagan is saying, hey, to, to black delegates, hey, you know, you may not like me, but I can do more for you than Gerald Ford can. I'll listen to you. I'll call you at home. I'll meet with you. Has Gerald Ford met with you? And so there's, you know, there are moments where black delegates are saying, you know, I don't, I don't know if I could trust Ronald Reagan. He is the face of conservatism right now, right wing conservatism right now. But I really don't like Gerald Ford because he hasn't done enough for us. And so we start, that's when we start to see some delegates and some black Republicans changing, changing uh, uh, sides. By 1980, I think Ronald Reagan and his search firm are really engaging in, in, Practices that I wouldn't necessarily say that, you know, I agree with, but that from a political standpoint are, are, are brilliant. Um, and by that, I mean, they are taking an approach where they say we have to make conservatism less scary. We have to make it seem as though the average American of any race can embrace conservatism. We have to soften it. And so one of the things that they do is that they go out and they reach out to black communities. And they do so in full force. And in fact, there's a very famous uh, speech that Ronald Reagan uses, states' rights speech, to launch his uh, campaign in 1980, uh, the Neshoba County Fair, the site, uh, the site of which 15, uh, 16 years earlier uh, forced three civil rights workers had been murdered. And people really interpret that as kind of a support for states' rights. Well, two or three days later, he goes and speaks at the headquarters of Ebony magazine. Um, also speaks with Jesse Jackson, and gives a speech to the National Urban League Convention. And he does it not necessarily to win over black voters, although if he does get black voters, yes, that'd be great. But he does it to show, African Amer- uh, show uh, white voters, white moderate and liberal voters, hey, look, I'm not this scary guy on race. I care about people of color. He also does interviews with Black Enterprise Magazine, where he talks about urban centers and connects race and economics. And specifically says, you know, I want to do outreach to African American communities. And then, I think most surprising, he goes to the Bronx, the South Bronx, uh, the site of which four years earlier Jimmy Carter had gone and talked about revitalizing the area. And he says, Are you better off today than you were four years ago? He says, No, you weren't. And so he gets into a shouting match with black and Latino voters, and instead of kind of storming off in anger, Actually, you can look this up. It's on YouTube. (laughs) Um, He says, you know, just listen to me. Just give me a chance. I just want to talk. I just want to talk with you. I want to hear you out. And I want you to hear me out. And in amongst the black press, it is a speech that is favorably received. So in the same moment where he is giving states rights speeches in Philadelphia, Mississippi, he is getting kudos from the black press for reaching out to black voters. And I think this becomes his strategy, Right don't do anything to rile up black voters because they will come out and vote against me and talk about race from the standpoint of economics, right? And in that way, I can begin to soften up conservatism, make it less scary, and not only appeal to black voters, but appeal to white, moderate, and liberal voters as well.
0: Okay, now your book is full. We've been talking mostly about white people, okay? (laughs) So let's talk about... The African Americans in your book, there's so many characters in your book. You've got, um, Edward Brooks and Robert Brown and Jackie, Jackie Robinson. You got Fletcher. You got so many people in there. It's packed full. You also have lots of organizations that came and went that tr- within the Republican party, like, and, and outside the Republican party, like the National Black Republican Council, the National Negro Republican Assembly. You've got, Uh, Lots of organizations working on different angles, trying to do different things within the party and the people. So I don't know where to start because there's so many people here, and it's just full of them. So uh, what I want you to do is talk about the the key people, the people that you believe are African-Americans within the Republican Party who made a difference, who really somehow moved the ball forward, because it's easy to think, well, they were totally ineffective, Break. Break. They didn't get anywhere because on the surface it looks like, hey, this is a losing battle. But a, but as you've already indicated at different points in the conversation, they were, there were some gains and they were effective in, in certain areas that we still have the legacy of their effectiveness. So talk about those key people. And you can go back all the way to Roosevelt and just uh, <laughs> tell me who you believe is it because there's so many here. I don't know where to start.
1: I know. So that, that's that's a little how I felt. And, you know, I'll say for, for anyone listening, there were so many people that I left out, you know, that easily on their own could have been their own books. <laughs> you know, um, there, there are so many just fascinating stories and pieces here and there and all over the place. Um, but I think a, a good place to start is actually with Ralph Bunch, who is not a Republican. But who consults for the Republican Party in 1944 and gives them this kind of, I mean, the best way to describe the document is it's groundbreaking. Because here is someone, here is a student of history and political science and really African-American studies saying, here's a blueprint. This is what you need to do in order to win back black voters. And he couches it within the language of the Republican Party. So he's saying you know, you don't have to be the Democratic Party, you don't have to be liberal, but you do have to come up with policy solutions for the most pressing issues facing African Americans in, in this country, civil rights, right? that's, that's number one, education, housing, health care, and so kind of this laundry list of things that they have to do. And then he proposes ways that they can fix it within the boundaries of Republican ideology. And so the Republican Party gets this and they're like, oh, it's phenomenal, but we don't want to release the whole thing. And so the, the, the relationship – oh, Wouldn't do you have it, a question?
0: Yeah, my question is, uh, what time period is this? This is
1: 1944.
0: Okay. All right. That's uh, early.
1: It's very, very early. And in fact, I mean, uh, going through going, – writing the book, it kind of felt like Ralph Bunch's solutions start off and uh, start off as the blueprint – and it felt cyclical because every so ye- every couple of years, it's another blueprint that really feels like it's based on what Ralph Bunch is saying. So from the period, of, you know, from the 1940s, Black Republicans, Black consultants, Black advisors to the Republican Party have been saying the same thing over and over and over again. Even as Rep- as Black Republicans get more conservative, because they do move to the right. Um, especially after the civil rights laws um, and acts are passed, they're still saying the same thing. And in fact, I think when you see kind of op-eds from 2014, 15, 2013, those op-eds are saying the same thing as well. You have to have policy solutions that address the very real needs of African-Americans in this country. And now I think it's brought into kind of, uh, racial minorities in this country, but the idea remains the same. So I think Ralph Bunch is influential and in kind of paving that, and uh, paving that way. Lillian, did you have a question?
0: Yeah, the question is, who is Ralph Bunch? I've never heard of him.
1: Oh, Ralph Bunch, Nobel—you know, Nobel Peace Prize winner. Um, he is a <laughs> Ralph Bunch is. How do I describe Ralph Bunch? Ralph Bunch is the consummate statesman, and he is, you know, at one point he is a professor at Howard University, um, he is a, a presidential advisor, he is influential in peace talks um, uh, during the 1950s and 1960s and wins a Nobel Prize for it. Um, and at this point in time, and, and I think from a, from a scholarly point of view, Ralph Bunch writes an incredible amount about the relationship between the Democratic and the Republican parties. And so he describes himself as a lifelong independent, and I think he's really he's incredibly skeptical of the Republican Party, but still agrees in the 1940s to, do, um, to uh, write an assessment of the Republican Party, as long as he's uh, allowed to critique the GOP and critique the, uh, the Democratic Party. And so this is at a relatively early stage in his career that he's writing this, um, before you know he goes on to to advise people um, on ma- diplomatic matters and on foreign policy, but it's still enough that he's he's a recognized name in African American communities. He's recognized within political circles and he's really you know I think he's really trying to refashion the two party political system so that race is treated in a manner that is effective, right? He's all about effective politics. And so I think he really, um, you know, uh, presents a very good case for reforming the Republican Party and making it, you know, um, making this really about competition, making this a viable place for African-Americans.
0: Right. So so he's, it's the same strategy that African-American Republicans have had all along, which was not just ideological, but also... a a way to make sure that African-American or black or minority issues are included in both parties.
1: Right. And so, you know, the the subtitle of the book is Pragmatic Politics and the Pursuit of Power. And so some people have told me, you know, that that's a cynical subtitle, (laughs) but it's true. I mean, part of this is about being pragmatic. They truly believe that this is the most pragmatic approach. How do we find the most efficient approach? To achieving two par- uh, poly- uh, power in a two-party political system, it's to go to both parties and it's to use our it's to use our votes as a political wedge to get what we want. And yes, that is cynical, um, but it's also the it's also I think the approach of people who believe in Western institutions, who believe in the two-party system, right? So don't believe in this idea of revolution or you know upending the system. But want to work within the system to find a solution.
0: Okay. After, after Bunch, who do we have uh, in your book that you you believe is you know is carrying the ball forward?
1: So I think another figure um, that we don't re- really hear too much about is E. Frederick Morrow, and I think he's a he's a special projects advisor uh, during the Eisenhower era, and I say that um, he's he's overlooked because. Really, we don't really um, hear too much about him. And when we do hear about him, it's, it's kind of as a, a side story. But he has his hand in every single pocket um, and in every single plate in the Eisenhower administration uh, that has to do with race. I mean, what's interesting about this is that he initially comes on board as kind of a special project person who's not dealing with race. But because he's the only black person in the president's office, he gets put on all racial issues. Right? So he becomes the go-between. And part of that is because he has a relation, an established relationship. He's a known player um, in the NAACP and the Urban League before he gets into the White House. And one of the, you know, one of the stories that I like to tell about E. Frederick Morrow is that uh, he is an advisor to Richard Nixon during Nixon's 1960 presidential campaign. And when Martin Luther King is arrested during that campaign, uh, Morrow tries to get to Nixon to say. You need to call. You need to reach out. Reach out to the King family. See what you can do to get King out of jail. You have to do something. You will lose the election if you don't do this. You will lose the black vote. And he's blocked by Nixon's other advisors at every angle. And by the time he reaches Nixon, he finds out that Kennedy has already done that. He's already called the family. They've already kind of arranged. They've pulled some strings. And Morrow says, you've lost the election. And while we can't be 100 percent certain that it's that moment that actually loses the election, it does play a remarkable role in how black voters view Richard Nixon. Right. So he gets 30 percent of the black vote and the rest is kind of history. So I think there's this moment where where Morrow is continually just talking about these same things that Bunch has been talking about and saying this throughout and saying, you know, they just don't get it. They just don't get it this policy of gradualism is not going to win over black voters because we've been waiting our entire lives. And so that's the role that he plays. And I think he's influential in really thinking about and, and deriving policy um, towards black voters during the 1950s. Um, by, the, by the 19, I think by the 1960s, though, the party has take, uh, gone in different directions. And so we start to see the emergence of very different people taking on, a, on prominent roles
0: one of the major names of course that more people are going to recognize right off the bat is senator edward brooks right, right. so talk about him a little bit and his role and a long role he was in it for a long time
1: very very long role and i think uh, uh you know a, a great way to i interviewed ed brooks a few a few years ago uh, before he died And he said, you know, one of the best ways to explain kind of my weird position is the fact that I've received the Presidential Medal of Freedom and the Congressional Medal of Freedom, one from a Republican president, one from a Democratic president. (laughs) So, you know, he has this kind of universal appeal. And I spent almost an entire chapter really talking about him, and he pops up throughout the book because he is such an influential playmaker within the GOP. And I think... It starts in 1964, um, really before this, but 1964 is where he rises to prominence because at a period in time where the GOP is really moving to the right and seems to be embracing Barry Goldwater's brand of conservatism, Ed Brooke very loudly, very publicly denounces his party's nominee. He says, I will have no ties to this person. This is pseudo-conservatism. And so Goldwater loses in a landslide but in the state of Massachusetts, an area that is predominantly white, predominantly Democratic, and predominantly Protestant—I mean Catholic—you have Ed Brooke, who is Black Republican, and you know a Protestant, win by a landslide. He just wipes the floor with his competition, um, and I think that really rises uh, puts him at a na- uh, puts him on a national stage. 1966, the same exact thing happens when he run- when he runs for Senate. We see him rise. Uh, rise to a national uh, landscape where he's not only the senator for Massachusetts, he becomes kind of, you know, the, the de facto senator for five million, six million, seven million black people in the United States. Um, what's really interesting about the campaign that he runs, I think, in 1966 is that he walks this kind of very thin tightrope. And the language that I use in the book is that he, he uh, embraces non-Negro politics, and you know it's it's used in a derogatory term um, by by Chuck Stone, who's the person who comes up with the phrase. But the way that I use it is that he actually walks this kind of tightrope between being colorblind and being race conscious, right? So a lot of people, a lot of scholars say, well, Ed Brooke downplayed his race. You know, he's, you know, he's the senator who happens to be a Negro. But in fact. Ed Brooks' race is constantly on display. You know, there are thousands of articles and and profiles written on him to the point where 100% of Massachusetts voters know that he is black. And in fact, his blackness figures in as part of the campaign, part of his campaign. So it's never as if he tries to say, you know, I'm not black. I don't want to talk about race. He actually takes on race kind of in a headstrong way. I think what is what is, um, uh, I think, difficult for people to understand is that it's hard to categorize him because he's not a Democratic politician. He's not a Martin Luther King, Jr., um, you know, progressive activist. In fact, when he runs in 1966, he's relatively conservative and he is a tried and true law and order guy. Right. So who says, you know, on the one hand, I support civil rights, but I don't support sit-ins and demonstrations because they're breaking the law. So, you know, it, it's this kind of back and forth type, um, type um, um, uh, display where I think he's representative of a type of politics that we've attributed to the black middle class for generations, right? So I talked about this at the beginning, this mel- merging of Booker T. Washington um, and W.E.B. Du Bois' school of talented 10th, hard work, personal, you know, personal responsibility, uplift, and Protestant work ethic. Um, that's who he is. Now, what ends up happening, though, is as, as Brooke gets into the Senate, he becomes more and more liberal. And I think part of that, he's talked about this in his, both in his autobiography and in interviews um, and in other documents, um, is that he realized as he got into the Senate how much power he had and that he had to be on the side of the people. So we do see him engage in a lot of kind of bipartisan efforts. You know, he forms, even though he doesn't join the Congressional Black Caucus, because he says, you know, I don't, I don't want to align myself necessarily with that group. I'm still a Republican, and this group is primarily Democratic. He still allies with them on almost, you know, um, on a number of different issues. So he becomes kind of the the liberal Republican in the Senate. And by the time that he's he's ousted from Congress in 1978, he has become you know, a champion in terms of women's rights, equal rights, civil rights, fair housing. Right. That becomes his signature policy, um, fair housing, um, to the point that, you know, we remember him as a particularly liberal Republican. And in fact, I think, um, I think it's Barack Obama who in an interview joked, you know, um, uh, I might be a Rockefeller Republican if this were, you know, a couple generations earlier, but also said, I attribute a lot of my political upbringing to somebody like Edward Brooke. And so you can absolutely see the overlaps. You know, if you open up any of Ed Brooke's writings from the 1960s, it's like looking at the playbook of Barack Obama. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Which brings me to another point. I know you're a historian you sort of stop with Reagan, but a lot has happened, in, of course, in the last 20, 30 years that are just, uh, I must bring up uh, in people like uh, Clarence Thomas and Condoleezza Rice, and now we've got a Republican African-American running for president, Carson. Um, and we have a Democratic president who is African-American. So right. What is uh, can you give Can you give us any insight or any analysis of what you think's happened with all this?
1: So I think you know the question that I usually get uh, is is something along these lines. But also the follow up is, well, wouldn't you say these people are really different? You know, Clarence Thomas is not Arthur Fletcher. Uh, Mia, you know, um, uh, Mia Love is not Gloria Toot or something like that. And what I like to say is that the strains that give birth to somebody like Clarence Thomas, Mia Love, Herman Cain, uh, you know, uh, these kind of contemporary black Republicans is very much rooted in the period that I talk about. So you have an organization like the Lincoln Institute uh, for Research and Education that comes about in the mid-1970s that is all about nurturing right-wing conservatives, right? There's also the black silent majority, which aligns itself with Strong Thurmond and kind of uh, these kind of right wing conservative uh of uh, uh republicans that really are embracing right wing ideology so it's kind of a natural you know a natural progression to see that in present day one of the the ideas though that separates the the past from the present is that by the mid 1980s there's a, high, a hard ideological break that happens both uh amongst black republicans um Whereas the period before that is kind of one of possibility, flexibility, elasticity, where people are crossing lines, you know, and that race is kind of the overriding um, concept. By the mid-1980s, race consciousness is something that many black Republicans are shunning. And in fact, they're embracing colorblindness. So it creates this these very rigid and hard lines, right? So this is how we get somebody like Clarence Thomas, who by the 1990s is saying, ah, you know, I, I see myself as colorblind and is effectively trying to dismantle the race conscious policies of the 1960s and 1970s. At the same time, we also have people like Colin Powell, who in 1992 is telling the Republican National Convention, there needs to be room in our, poli- in our party for people who support affirmative action, right, who support a woman's right to choose, for people who, are, who believe in kind of secular politics, et cetera, et cetera. And he's, you know, initially he's booed when he says that. And then the crowd gives him a standing ovation. So, you know, there's still a lot of um, possibility and opportunity going on in the GOP at the time. So, yes, I mean, this is this is giving birth to the type of politicians that we're seeing today. One thing, though, that I I do argue is that we're going to continue as long as the party, as long as the Republican Party keeps moving to the right. The types of black Republicans who get platforms and who get kind of speaking roles and, and who take on prominent positions are going to be of the conservative bent. They are going to be, uh, you know, the, Colin, uh, the uh, Clarence Commises, uh the Mia Loves, the Tim Scotts, um, you know, the Ben Carsons, because those politics match up squarely with what white Republicans are saying, right? So there's no, um, there's kind of no uh, uh, conflict underneath. And also part of this is that they're appealing in in order to be elected, right? Many of them are coming from districts that are predominantly white and conservative. They do need to appeal to the base. So they're not necessarily saying anything that is different from what their base is saying. So that's, you know, what we're going to continue to see. What would be interesting is to see um, black Republicans in the kind of the old school vein who, who come up and who are not afraid to critique their party's standard line, who are much more in line in, in doing outreach. And I think some figures, say like J.C. Watts, have taken the approach that our party needs to do better.
0: Okay Now, when do you, you've just said a lot what to think about, where do you think your book will be useful? In, ter- in terms of historiography and otherwise,
1: so I like to think that there are multiple places that my my book can be useful. Um, I think it, it's definitely a book that, in terms of talking about both black politics and much uh, and and broad and much more broadly, American politics has something to contribute, right? So I talk um, I, I talk about something that is at the intersection of all of these things, of civil rights of black politics, of American politics, of Republican politics, of the history of conservatism um, that really disrupts our standard narrative of what American history and politics looks like during the 20th and 21st century. So I like to think that it will be useful there. Um, I also like to think, you know, I know that this is kind of, you know, it's a history book, but I do like to think that this is an, I take an interdisciplinary approach. And so that it's useful for, um, you know, students of political science students of American politics, and people who are interested in contemporary public affairs, right? So how did we get figures like Clarence Thomas, where does he come from? How do we get to this conversation on colorblindness in 2015? Where do these racial tensions between African-American voters, minority voters, and the Republican Party come from? And I think my book helps understand that. Um, And then I think much um, more generally, I think a conversation about how policy happens and how it is made and how it changes, right, and how institutions in the state engage in policymaking um, is part of what I try to do in the book, which I think is necessary for 2015 because right now we are in the midst of, uh, you know, an American political crisis of which we haven't seen in, in decades. And so trying to understand, you know, how grassroots politics say for example like uh or grassroots activists like the black lives matters activists who are disrupting the political the traditional political conversation directly relates to what i talk about in the book throughout right so how are these progressive activists and how are these conservative activists changing the political conversation or at least trying to change the political conversation Um, and then how are they doing so in a way that is effective and in ways that aren't effective so that's what I think. I like to think my book fits in.
0: So, what are you working on now?
1: Oh, so I have a couple of projects in, in the on the burner. Um, I think the big project that I'm trying to finish up right now is kind of uh, looking at um, uh, the role of Black men and women in the Republican and uh, Republican administrations, specifically the Reagan administration and the Bush administration, Bush Senior administration, um, and so both of these administrations. Uh, put black people into positions of power, including cabinet positions, with kind of, I think, interesting results. So really a conversation about policy making, especially along civil rights lines, uh, economic policy, housing policy, and health policy. So that's, I think, project uh, one. The second project that I'm really uh, you know, trying to get into is, is a biography of Ed Brooke and looking at his political influence um, throughout the 19, uh, 1960s and 1970s And then, really, what is the legacy of that influence going forward? How does it influence not only um, contemporary conservatism, especially in terms of colorblindness and race, but also how does it influence contemporary neoliberalism? Right. So that's really exciting to me. How do uh, black Democratic politicians engage in kind of the politics or the legacy of Ed Brooke to convey um, to convey uh, what we might consider? right-wing or middle-of-the-road politics, moderate politics, uh, centrist politics um, in an age of racial crisis. And then I think I'm also working um, on several smaller uh, projects. You know, I I have an article in the works about black celebrities in the Republican Party, and then one about the role of black women in conservatism, which I think is really exciting. Um, You know, one of the, the stats that I bring up in my book that political scientists have done a little bit of work on is how about uh, a third of African-American communities self-identify as Republican, uh, as conservative but don't necessarily vote for the Republican Party. And so to me, that's fascinating, especially then when you look further into it and see that a lot of these women, uh, a lot of these people that self-identify as conservative but are not voting Republican are black women. So even though black women are identified as conservative, they're doing a lot of legwork for the Democratic Party, too. And so what ends up happening is that you have figures like, you have organizations like the uh, Black Silent Majority, which are really carried and pushed by women, right, and pushing these conservative agendas. But then when it comes time for local and national elections, these very same conservative black women are not going out and voting for the Republican Party. So to me, there's something really interesting going on there. And um, some of the preliminary work that I've done on that has been with uh uh Mankirius, who is just this uh, really fascinating figure who served as presidential advisors, so I think four different Republican presidents. So that's kind of what's in the works.
0: <laughs> okay, thank you, Leah. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in American Studies. It would be a pleasure to hear from you. Drop me a line at newbooks.americanstudies at gmail.com. This is your host, Lillian Barger.